Hello and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I am your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today, we're taking an in-depth look at the collection itself with services specialist Annette Motzak, who has worked with the collection for 31 years and is currently responsible for acquisitions, exhibits, programs, and events. Hi, Annette. Hi, Oliver. How did this all start? Well, it started back in 1969, which is going on 50 years ago. Science fiction writer Judith Merrill had just uh, moved to Toronto, and she decided to donate her uh, collection of around 5,000 items to the Toronto Public Library. Um, at that time, the collection was called the Spaced Out Library. Um, actually, what happened was Judith Merrill left the United States in about 1968 and uh, emigrated to Toronto. And for a certain amount of time, she was the writer in residence at the U of T's Rochdale College um, nearby here. And she had brought her collection of about 5,000 items with her. Um, shortly after that, the Rochdale College closed and Judy decided to bring her collection to Toronto Public Library. Um, so in 1969, she, she did that and brought it to the then head of the Toronto Public Library, Harry Campbell, um, and made him an offer that she would provide her core collection of about 5,000 items, and she requested that they would provide a location for it and um, a budget to continue adding to it to make it available to, to the citizens of Toronto. At that time, it was called the Spaced Out Library, um, we're talking 1970, we're just after the moon landing and it's sort of a happy-go-lucky way of looking at things. And we kept that name actually for quite some time um, and then eventually did change it to the Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation and Fantasy in, I believe, 1992. Okay, and um, was, was Judith Merrill sort of the first collection head uh, or was she involved more as a, as a person outside the library system? Um, she wasn't actually involved in the operation of the library at all. She did oh, okay. donate her material, and she had a clause in the, the original donation that she would have um, office space in the, the building and access to the collection for her lifetime. Oh. So she did have a tiny little office in the old building and would pop in all the time so that she could continue to look at the material, but she had no more role in, in acquiring it or anything else to do the operation of the library. So Judith Merrill, she wrote and edited science fiction too, didn't she? Yes, she did. Judith started out as a writer of short stories for the early pulp magazines, and she wrote in a variety of genres, science fiction and all kinds of different things, anything that would sell, basically uh, baseball stories, detective stories. Hmm. She wrote under all sorts of pseudonyms. Um, she's best known for writing science fiction under her own name or, and also under names like Cyril Judd, which was a joint pseudonym that she wrote with Cyril Cornbluth. Judy wrote a number of well-regarded novels and short story collections. She's probably best known for Shadow on the Hearth, a 1950s uh, look at how the, the nuclear scare would affect people living in New York. Her collections are very well regarded by feminist writers in terms of looking at uh, the future from a distinctly female perspective. Her later career, where she's probably made her biggest name, was as an editor of science fiction. She edited a number of 
series, including the year's greatest science fiction anthology series. Um, some name changes there later on. It was the best of science fiction and such and such for about from the 50s to the 70s. And she wrote a vast number of review articles on science fiction of all kinds. Oh, excellent. Uh, and, and would you say, um, as a, given that she edited anthologies, was mm-hmm. she, did she have a knack for finding talent? Uh, did she help, were there any names we might recognize that she helped raise to awareness of? Absolutely. Judy had a, a really good eye. She could tell within three pages if something was worth uh, reading, letting alone, let alone publishing. Hmm. She was particularly impressed in the 60s and she went to England and became acquainted with the, the British New Wave of science fiction. So she brought a lot of authors like Brian Aldiss um, over to the attention of the American and North American reading public. And that's celebrated in her first anthology, England Swings, which came <laughs> out in the early... I love the title. Yes. It sounds like the 60s, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. definitely. Uh, now, that reminds me, um, with Britain there, wasn't there a Doctor Who connection with, with Judith Merrill at some point? Yes, much later after the Doctor Who BBC TV series was brought over and re-aired in Ontario by TVO, Judy was one of the hosts of the show. She used to do a little introductory talk before the episode would air and she was known as the undoctor <laughs> so she would she would talk about the up, the upcoming episode and the themes that were going to be raised and how important they were in terms of thinking about you know society in the future oh, that sounds that's really really cool uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a shame she's still not with us to do that for uh, the, the, the current run of oh, uh, yes. Doctor Who. That would be lovely. It would be interesting to see what she thinks of the current version <laughs> of it. Who's her favorite Doctor? Well, shame you can't ask. <laughs> um, so um, you've covered a little bit of this, but how would you say the collection has evolved since you know the early days of the Spaced Out Library? Okay, well, when I came on staff in 1988, and at that time we were still in the our older building around the corner, which was... It was a building that used to be the uh, staff building for the then Toronto Reference Library. Um, So it was really a building that was not intended to be entirely a public area. Uh, We had a series of interconnected little rooms and it was, so the space was a bit Mm. claustrophobic, but very cozy. We were also open stack back then, people would wander through the collection, um, which was very, very nice for our readers, but not very good for our materials because the books were subject to a lot of sunshine and changing temperatures. If Um, if I may, I I won't name names, but a a now retired employee once told me that they might as well have left the books on the lawn. Now they they may have been feeling a bit uh, cynical that day, but it sounds like you didn't have climate control. Uh, no, no. We are now in a state of the art building where the, the stacks are kept at a very a constant temperature and humidity as much as we possibly can manage. But no, I recall seeing the thermostat go up and down from, you know, anywhere to anywhere. Anyway. 50, to, you know, I'm 50, you know, 56 degrees in the winter and, you know, in the 90s in the summer. I'm, <sighs> I'm old, so I think in Fahrenheit. That's okay. But it was, it was a very small building, so we didn't have as much space as we could. So when I started working there, we were still called the Spaced Out Library. And we've always done what we do. We try to collect one of everything in the English language, in science fiction and fantasy, some horror, some well, speculative lit, uh, experimental fiction, anything that fits in the genre. But we also have a, we've also kept a nonfiction collection of, well, now we're around 5,000 items, mm-hmm. a material that supports the collection. And so one of the reasons why this collection was put together was that in 
around the time Judy was thinking about it, people started to take science fiction more seriously. In the late 60s, it's not just a genre of fiction, just, not just popular entertainment that's disposable, but it looks at really interesting themes. It looks at the society in a lot of different ways, and it's worth studying. So in the 60s, people started to take it more seriously and teach it, for example, in high school classes, looking at science fiction works and what they're talking about. So there, be, there, we, there arose a need for background material on science fiction as well as the books themselves. So we've been collecting non-fiction on, you know, the various authors and the genres and the themes, on the related genres like the television shows and films, graphic novels, all of that, to, to support research at the you know, the high school and university and postdoctorate level. Well, that's one of our main reasons for existing. Right, and also um, there are many notable authors who have used uh, the collection for their research, including good old Margaret Atwood. I gather she came by to uh, do research for, uh, I want to say, Oryx and Craig? No, for the blind assassin. Pardon me, they for the blind assassin. That's true. We've had people from all over the world coming to do their research here because we, you know, we do have one of everything, and we never, we never remove material from the collection. We always add to it, and it's a terrific resource for researchers as well as readers and writers. Yeah, I mean, certainly for me in my own humble, uh, you know, prose writing and, and, and role-playing games, to be honest, uh, I found it very useful uh, to go through the material. It's very uh, interesting to see the continuity from the stuff that we're familiar with now and where it came from and how sometimes, you know, well, anyway, I don't want to go off my own tear, but yes, I, I can just say from my own humble corner, I found it very useful and very enjoyable. And uh, that changing in attitudes you mentioned is part of why uh, the materials are so precious, right? Because before the 60s, of course, it was so much more disposable. And the fact that you have complete runs of the pulse and that you have some original art from that era is remarkable given that, uh, as it's been told to me in the past uh, by yourself and other employees of the collection, you know, original, uh, the, the, the artists themselves would do a beautiful cover for an issue of Astounding, let's say, and then just go, eh, and leave it on the bus. <laughs> and most people reading the magazines would read them almost shamefully and then go, well, chuck it, you know, at the end. So the fact that you have these complete runs is, is really remarkable. It's, it's a wonderful thing. We do have some original art um, from that period. I don't want to overstress our art collection because uh, primarily we are a book, uh, a book collection. Um, but we do have some lovely things like Virgil Finley drawings. It's very true that pulp illustrators did not necessarily value their own work uh, very highly. I mean, one of the illustrations that we have was obviously a beautiful drawing done on an artist's board, and you know these things would be drawn and they would be photographed for the pulps, and then you'd go on to the next project. These folks were working for very little money and they had to really rush through it. One of the, the pieces of work we have actually says back in five minutes on the back of the of the cardboard because <laughs> at once it was photographed you didn't really care anymore. Yeah, it's just, just, put just a piece on the of door cardboard. Out for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's right, that's right. But um, we were talking about how the collection has uh, evolved over time. Mm -hmm. um, while we were still in the old building, we, we noticed a trend in well, in the comic field. We don't collect comic books in this in the Merrill collection, but we noticed that the basically graphic novels had started to become really worthwhile, and you started to see 
really interesting art and interesting stories being told in graphic novel for, format. I'm guessing maybe that would have been in the uh, the eighties when you had say Maus and Watchmen and all the sort of the, the wave That's of right. much more uh, adult comics. By which I mean uh, aimed at adult audiences. Yes, absolutely. I think it would have been. Well, I started in '88, so it was very soon after that that we started to collect, and we only took about a thousand dollars and made you know just did a small purchase, mm-hmm. and we had a little shelf of gra- graphic novels. Oddly enough, Watchmen was one of them, and so was Maus. And we wanted, we just thought, we'll watch and see what happens in this genre, this form, and also with, see whether our, our readers were interested. And it became very popular indeed, and as you, you know, the graphic novel industry has just completely exploded. So now we are up to, I have to double check the number, but I think well over, I think we're up to like 5,000 graphic novels in our collection right now. Wow. And they are heavily used. We can't support collecting comic books just in terms of the fragility of the materials and... And the sheer volume and, and of all material the, but we, we, <laughs> so we Exactly. So we select uh, the graphic novels that are pertinent to our genre. Mm-hmm. So with science fiction or fantasy themes, superhero themes, the things that are acclaimed you know, like the mouse and things like that. Um, yeah, and, and I would just say to you, uh, listeners, uh, when you come by the collection, I nearly said if, uh, <laughs> when you come by the collection, if you want to check out graphic uh, um, novels, uh, right at the front desk, there's a big binder that says graphic novels on it, and you can just go through there. I've had so much fun pouring through that list. Uh, they're, of course, also uh, in the system, but, you know, physically there, it's nice to flick through the binder. Exactly. Okay, so... Um, well, where would you say, and of course this is speculative, um, but based on your experiences and what you know, where would you say uh, the collection is headed? You know, we've had it go from this smaller building with no climate control and people could walk through the stacks, which I'm sure must have resulted in some theft. Um, and now everything is very carefully stored, very you know, lovely temperature controlled uh, section of a beautiful library building. And you've got over 80,000 items, but I'm sure you're always looking uh, to the future, whether it's uh, new acquisitions, uh, new ways to bring awareness uh, to the collection. So um, what is the future? Please predict it with perfect (laughs) accuracy. You will be held accountable later. Absolutely. Well, I predict that we're going to keep on doing what we do best, which is uh, make sure that our collection is comprehensive in the areas that we do collect in, which is science fiction and fantasy. I have to say, we, it is a, a, quote, adult collection, like, not in the bad way, but <laughs> be, um, basically we only collect from about a grade, the middle grade, like grade seven upward. There are fantastic children children's collections already in Toronto Public Library, Including and that's just an area. right upstairs, it, right, on the fourth floor. Exactly. The Osborne Collection collects material, and if the Lillian Smith has the Lillian Smith collection itself, which is deals with them. Um, contemporary children's material of all kinds. So we don't, we don't overlap over very much in that area. But having said that, one of everything in English, whether it be North American, British, Australian, or sometimes in translation, and as much as we can provide in the supporting literature, as I say, the nonfiction, uh, periodicals and critical material that's being published. Um, okay, well, I mean, uh, are, you first, let's, let's look at acquisitions to be more specific, because mm-hmm. um, that was a very broad question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, are there any sort of great white whales that you're chasing after, you know? Like, I, I think you uh, maybe mentioned to me one time that you would love to get a hold of a first edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That would be great, and I should mention that people are welcome to donate material to the Toronto Public Library. This is, this is if true, they listeners. Would like to do so. If, if any of you 
have a sniffer of brandy while you're sitting in your large, uh, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle-esque uh, library uh, and looking at your first editions and what you'd like to do with them, consider That's donating to exactly. the Merrill Collection. Exactly. Now, we do get people wanting to bring in... Um, you know, they're lifelong collections of material. And one thing that we don't have an awful lot of is, is space. So we can't afford to duplicate things that are currently on the shelf already. Uh, also, uh, there are events held at the Merrill Collection. Uh, there have been uh, big name uh, readings. I mean, Neil Gaiman came by one time, didn't he? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, he's, I believe he's been here twice. Um, he's getting too big a name for us to fit in here anymore, but he's, uh, he did speak here and he launched um, Stardust many years ago. Right, and then and there's Toronto's own Cory Doctorow has been by a few times, right? Yes, absolutely, and we have had, we hold an academic conference here every second year called the, which is jointly held with the York University. Um, it's called the Academic Conference on Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy, or ACCSFF, short, not that that's very short, and we have had a number of notable guests, including Margaret Atwood here at the collection, and um, science fiction greats like Phyllis Gottlieb, and we continue to hold that every second year when we can, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, that means almost certainly, one way or another, you've seen a certain image of a kind of wry, smiling, kind of smiling, a little Martian poking his head through a keyhole, looking right at you. Well, there's a story behind that image, and Annette, if you'd be so kind, uh, would you please tell our audience what the, the deal is with the little Martian guy? Okay, well, Oliver, it's kind of a fun story. The little green man was actually a cover illustration from the, ninth, the September 1954 issue of Astounding Stories, and it was the cover illustration to accompany a story by Frederick Brown, called Martians Go Home, and that was a short story first published, as I say, in the pulps, um, about an invasion of extremely obnoxious little green men from Mars who come down and in dozens and hordes and uh, turn up all over the city and poke their noses into everyone's business and try to understand what humans are all about, and they're extremely annoying and rude. And it was quite a humorous story by Frederick Brown. Um, he later expanded it into a novel length, and one of the, pop the paperback editions of the story was also had the same illustration. Um, the, right. the artist is Frank Kelly Fries, or Kelly Fries, and as I say, he was very famous in the genre. People who don't read science fiction would recognize his work if you've ever seen one the uh, little boy Alfred E. Newman Alfred on, Newman from on Mad Magazine. magazine. Right? Yeah. Um, Frias painted one of the versions of, of Alfred E. Newman with the big gap tooth smile. And you can totally see a bit of Alfred E. Yeah. Newman in The Martian, which is kind of fun. I don't know if that's uh, just a face he liked to draw, or uh, you know, who knows. It yeah. is a bit of, and it, it, the thing is, it's uh, some of some of Frias's uh, illustrations were also sort of tongue-in-cheek self-portraits. He had kind oh. of a a, a wide okay. kind of a grin and all that, and he seemed, he he didn't take himself too seriously, but he really did like to paint this um, Martian. And so the the painting originally was done for Astounding Stories, and the original painting after it was photographed would have been sold. But Fries liked the image so much that he popped it into other illustrations. There's an original painting that exists somewhere where he um, Alfred E. Newman is shaking hands with uh, the little green man and they're uh. on the surface of, I think, Mars or something like that. <laughs> Sometimes he'd dress him up with a Santa hat um, so he, he could be on the Christmas edition of magazines. Right. And 
For whatever reason, many years later, Kelly Fries decided to take a galley copy of the Astounding Stories magazine and repaint the painting. Um, so he produced another oil painting, I believe, of his of his drawing, and that one came on the market after K- Kelly Fries died. So it, it came up to auction, and the Friends of the Merrill organization purchased that second painting for us mm. and the rights to reproduce it. Okay, so, uh, you know, we only have so much time together, and I really want to make sure that we come back to the woman who is, you know, the, uh, responsible for it all, I think is a fair statement, uh, Judith Merrill. Uh, you know, you're, I think, the only uh, current employee of the Merrill Collection who knew Judith personally, right? Or knew, knew her, period, worked mm-hmm. with her at all. Um, well, what was she like? Uh, you know, I mean, she obviously cared passionately about uh, writing, uh, about science fiction, um, and, and public service, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, what, what else might you want to tell us about Judith? In Judith's later career, she basically devoted herself to political activism, and that's one of the reasons why she decided to come to Canada, actually, she was uh, supported. She was um, fervently against the the war and Vietnam. Uh, yeah, yeah, and she she was um, very much involved in political lobbying and you know human rights and all sorts of issues like that. She was a very strong personality, a very very intelligent. To say she she didn't suffer fools gladly. So right. I I can't say that I. I knew her all that well on one-on-one, but certainly got to see her many times when she would come into the library. And yeah, she she was passionate about a lot of things, passionate about family. I think the best conversations I had to her were about raising my kids, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, passionate about motherhood. It sounds uh, like she was kind to the fresh-faced young special collections <laughs> uh, woman that she was meeting, right? Well, yeah, but in terms of ideas and, um, you know, she, she certainly could hold her own in an argument. She could be very strong indeed in an argument. A very powerful mind. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so I'd like to sort of tie things up now uh, with just asking you, you know, what makes the Merrill Collection unique? We've talked about so much of what makes it special, but uh, for all some of our listeners may know, there could be something like it just over, uh, you know, in another province or, or somewhere in the States. What, what makes Merrill stand out? The Merrill Collection is one of only possibly five genre collections in North America that's completely devoted to science fiction and fantasy, but we are the only one that is completely open to the public and completely accessible to anybody. Um, now, with a, I have to mention, our material, is, it is a reference collection, so none of our material can ever be taken out. But because of that, we can make sh- all of this material available to you forever, basically. Um, uh, genre, collect- genre materials, popular culture materials like this, have a very short life because they are so popular. They're often printed on flimsier paper, like the pulp magazines. Mm-hmm. They weren't intended to last a long time when people would read them, you know, buy them at the drugstore, read them, and throw them away. But the fact is that we keep them, and we keep them in very good condition in a temperature and humidity-controlled area, and I'll keep them out of the, the light. And we, we were trying to preserve this original material forever so that you can always come back and find a copy for your, for either for your enjoyment to read or for research purposes. Mm-hmm. And we add to the collection all the time, so we do have one of everything you could imagine to read. So all you need to do is, is um, come in and we'll bring out virtually anything that's in our collection, as long as it's not too fragile to handle. Um, but 
really everything we have is available to you. Yeah, and for a few listening, I've been coming here for five years. Uh, I've gone through an extensive amount of material. I've never been told I couldn't look at it. Even some of the more fragile stuff, they have special ways for you to handle it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's lovely. And if you're not sure what we have, and before you even decide to make the trip, I want to let you know that everything in our collection is catalogued, and it's in the Toronto Public Library's uh, online catalog. So you can log in from home, and you can browse through and see whether we have the edition that you're interested in. If you have a reference question, you can always email us or phone us, and we'll answer your question. Um, as best as we can and if you would just like to find an, an something good to read we're all really interested in the genre we all read it so come on in and tell us what you like and we'll try to recommend something good for you to read yeah and that's not kidding you folks I've discovered so much great stuff just by having a friendly chat with the people behind the desk and uh, I really enjoyed this friendly chat uh, thanks for spending time with me today Annette I uh, really appreciate it thank you very much Oliver it's all been right. great this has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.